Hey everybody, welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. To prepare for our Big Book Study, let's get focused by having a three-minute moment of silent meditation, followed by the fog light prayer. Good evening, everybody. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Ryan. And I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to get start the meditation in just a minute, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or will distract others for the duration of the meeting. The coffee area will be closed for this portion of the meeting so as to minimize distractions. Also, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. For the meditation, some suggestions are focus on your breath and your posture. Breathe in God and breathe out self. Take this time to get reconnected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you focus on, on the study. Is everybody ready? All right, let's bring those monks in and get those lights down.
Join us in the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. We have a secretary at this meeting, and I would like to introduce that secretary now for the secretary report. Ronnie. Hey, guys. I'm Ronnie, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm your alcoholic secretary. Well, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I have had my friend Mark to come. I've asked him to come up here to read the recovered notice so that you get a better idea of what that means. My name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. This is a recovered notice. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now seeing where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. All right. So we read that so to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. We also have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. And I forgot to mention earlier that if you do not have cash on you, we actually take Venmo, PayPal, we do Western unions, like we, we do it all. It's, it's, it's pretty serious over here. We meet every Monday promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery tune, and we'll see you next week. Um, from the forward of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have Alcoholics Anonymous for more than 100 men and women 
who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book and of this group. From there is a solution also from the big book. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This is an open meeting, and as such, all who have interest in alcoholism and our program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here if you do not wish to do so. Your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. And on the topic of anonymity, this meeting is going to be on podcast. It's going to be broadcast on the Internet. So if you don't want your voice on the Internet, just go ahead and pass that mic when the question and answer segment comes around. Uh, Can we have a show of hands of people joining us for the first time? And then can I get a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? And if you could just leave your hands up. Um, is there anybody in the room looking for a sponsor? Awesome. So just see any one of those people that had their hands up, and they can help get you back to God. While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover from alcoholism and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. Does anybody need a big book? Uh, we have a couple loners. Did anybody make it past the greeting team? Awesome. Everyone's got their big book. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, before we begin our study of the big book, we are not actually going to do traditions. Our traditionist, has, uh, she's not going to be here tonight, but she'll be back next week, uh, God willing. And so if you want to look at those traditions, it's 562 on the Fatty Patty and 177 of the abridged. And yeah, no traditions tonight. Awesome. We're still going to try to live by them, though. <laughs> In order to help us stay focused as we study the big book, we use the big book study guide prepared by Joe and Charlie and Krusty Cliff of the Dallas Primary Purpose Group. All right. And who do we have reading for us tonight? Is it Kathleen? Kathleen, come on up. (laughs) We're going to begin reading tonight on page 21. We're actually going to tee up, though, on page 20. So page 20, 21. uh, And that's going to be read by Kathleen. On After the page is read, we're going to ask questions from the podium, uh, starting back at the top of page 21. Uh, the answers will be in one sentence unless otherwise specified, and multi-part questions are simply a one-sentence answer split up by commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuation. Basically, in English, what that means is we're going to read the material once through and then redissect a second time through the question and answer format. Notice how the language in the questions gives us a new light in which to consider the study material. This is important because hearing the question and rereading the content offers a definite way of comprehending the material covered. After we've completed the page, we open up for comments, questions, and observation based on what was just read. If you have spiritual experience with this information, you're free to share. And if you're not, you're free to ask questions. However, big book study is not therapy. Should you begin sharing about topics which are more appropriately discussed in a different, i.e. sponsorship setting, please don't be offended when we cut that conversation short. For that purpose, we have fellowship meetings before and after our study time. You can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us to the word of words of one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol, through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps, is the sole purpose of any Alcoholics Anonymous group. And here we are on page 2021. There is a solution, chapter 2 in the big book. And we didn't just start here, right? We started 19 weeks ago. We started the big book study on page 0, where we, we really dove into things. And so do we want to do a quick recap, Ryan? Sure. Okay, sure. so what did we do in the... Uh, So we we started off uh, with the preface and the forewords to the book. Um, It kind of talks about what Alcoholics Anonymous is, how it became what it is today. It gives us a little history on it. Um, You know, because if we're going to be 
uh, signing up for an organization for the rest of our life, you know, it's, it's good to find out what that organization is. Um, and we got to see uh, a little bit about how Bill met Bob um, and like some, some like the traditions, how they came to be, how the spiritual experience came to be in the book. Um, so it's just some information on what it is that we're getting ourselves into. And then after the preface and the forewords, we went through the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion describes the malady of alcohol, the threefold illness, the mental obsession, the physical allergy, and that spiritual malady, that soul sickness. And it talks briefly about what the solution is. It has a couple of stories of recovery in there. And so the doctor's opinion is a must read if you're an alcoholic. And he, you know, he encourages us all to read this book through, right? And then after the doctor's opinion, when we get that uh, highlight of what the disease is, we get to see... We get to read Bill's story. Um, so it's really important that we've read that doctor's opinion, even though it's on the Roman numeral pages, because now we're going to understand what Bill's story means. Um, so now that we know what alcoholism is, uh, Bill's story kind of paints a picture of what it looks like. And while everything in Bill's story is not completely re relatable for a lot of us, a lot of us weren't working on Wall Street, a lot of us weren't going and playing golf for a month, but when he talks about that hopeless, that futility of living that he was going through with his alcoholism, that we can absolutely relate to. Um, and not only do we hear that story, but we also get to hear how his friend Ebby Thatcher came and presented him a solution to his problem. Um, and he, he ended up doing the steps, and that led us into... There is a solution. We start off on page 17 with there is a solution. And we learn that there is a difference between the fellowship and the program, right? The fellowship, the meetings that we all attend, that is not the program of AA, right? That's one element in the, in the cement that binds us, but that never would have held us together the way we're joined, and then we get read the tremendous fact that's also on page 17, and that this is packed with content. There is a solution. is an awesome chapter, and that's a chapter that we're going to get deep into today, starting on page 20. So there's, there's two powers, right? It's good to be at meetings, good to have the fellowship, but also good to do the program of recovery and get recovered. So Kathleen, if you would, please, I will tee up on the top of page 20. You may already have. Okay, thank you. My name's Kathy. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Kathy. Hey. You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us have become so very ill from drinking. Doubtless, you are curious, about, curious to discover how and why. In the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we've recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may be already asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions, specifically, we shall tell you what you have to do, what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times have people said to us, I can take it or leave it alone? Then why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine, lay off the hard stuff? His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is all lit up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different than ours. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or they can leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker, he may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a couple years before his time. If a sufficient strong reason, ill health, falling in love, changing of environment, or the warning of a doctor become operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. 
But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, once he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption, once he starts to drink... And this is where we're going to start our study today. Go ahead, Kathy. Oh, okay, keep reading? Yes, please. Okay. Here's a fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incred- incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. His desp- dip- <laughs> disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he is frequently becomes dis- disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genuine for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when something important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except for liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless spree, series of sprees. He's a fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he should sleep the clock around, yet early next morning he searches madly for the bottle he's misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw it down the waste pipe. As matters get worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedatives and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drunk means another debacle with all of its attending sufferings and humiliation, why is it that he takes one drink? Why can't he stand the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently than normal people. We are not sure why. Once at a certain, a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer this riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drinking, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol whatsoever into his system, something happens, both in the body and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic can abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, therefore setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on the last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes his excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of a man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so they can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious 
reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritable and refuse to talk. All right. And that's where we're going to end tonight. So we're going to move into the Q&A session. Ryan's going to be going around with the microphone. I'm going to be asking questions. And these are one sentence, unless I say, you know, two part, it might be two sentences, or it might be the whole paragraph. So we're starting at here is the fellow. It's about midway down page 21. What is especially puzzling about the real alcoholic? Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. What does he do while drinking? He does. He is real. He does absurd, incredible. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Does the real alcoholic experience a change of personality when he drinks? He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Is the real alcoholic usually only mildly intoxicated? He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is almost always in what condition? He is always more or less insanely drunk. Are many real alcoholics decent people when sober? This is two sentences. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. What happens when they drink? Yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. At what is he a genius? He has a positive genius for getting tied at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Got a three-part question here. Is the real alcoholic a normal person in every way but one? What is that one? In this run respect, they are incredibly what? He is often per- perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that one respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. Are most alcoholics talented and capable? He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. Got a two-parter. How does the real alcoholic use his gifts? And what does the alcoholic do to scuttle success? Mm-hmm. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. Should a drunk alcoholic sleep all day and all night? He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. The alcoholic's sleep is interrupted for what reason? Yet early next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If an alcoholic has sufficient funds, what does he do? If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away for him to throw down the waste pipe. We've got a two-parter. When alcohol quits working, what do many alcoholics add to their drinking, and what do they hope to accomplish? As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. What follows this effort? There comes the day when he simply cannot make it and he gets drunk all over again. What is the next step to continue to be able to function? Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative, which to taper off. Then where do real alcoholics start winding up? Then he begins to appear at the hospitals and sanitariums. And treatment centers. (laughs) Right. So this, uh, this page is open for comment. Does anybody have experience with this paragraph or any of the material here? We got a hand? Yeah. I do. Okay, please. So, like, in my experience, 
you do, as, as me, as an alcoholic, I always do end up in some type of hospital or institution. So I can completely agree with this whole paragraph because doctors do give um, some type of medication to kind of taper off of the alcohol and the DTs that come with it. So I can absolutely relate. Thanks for sharing. Kind of makes me think of um, in Bill's story when his brother-in-law comes and gives him sedative that's supposed to knock him out for a really long time, and then he wakes up and he's drinking gin and sedative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just shows how powerful that phenomenon of craving is that it wakes him up out of sedated sleep mm-hmm. so he can go get more gin. And that combination landed him on the rocks. Yep. <laughs> like his gin. Or if they can afford it. Hi, recovered alcoholic named Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Um, when I read this the first time, I really related to it, and now I relate to it even more. Um, I I started as my alcoholism progressed. I did incredibly absurd, incredible, and tragic things. I've said this before. It says he's a real doctor, Jekyll and Mister Hyde. My husband's nickname for me was Sybil, so I was Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde plus six. <laughs> I, I, I was never mildly intoxicated. I was always insanely drunk, and I would go from fine to off the rails. I don't remember. I couldn't stop once I set off, you know, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. Um, not drunk. I was a, you know, I was a, a, a pretty, you know, I don't know that I was the finest fellow in the world, but I was, I was all right. You know, and if I just started drinking for a day, it became like dangerously antisocial. I would stay in my bed or on the couch for days at a time, just drinking and drinking and drinking. I couldn't stop. I get myself together. I would get back into a career, you know, because it was towards the end where I really started not being able to work. But I would get another career built up, another good job. Uh, the high-powered sedatives. Oh, I also went to bed so intoxicated I should sleep around the clock. And I could afford to have it concealed all over my house, and I did. And as matters grew worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedatives and liquor. I would try other substances. I would go to the doctor, and, you know, I had this neck problem, so they prescribed me tramadol. And you know, that stuff's dangerous. You know, and I would use that to try to keep me from drinking or to be able to get up enough energy to go to work. And then the day came where I could not make it to work. I was dressed and on my way back to the liquor store, back to the hotel. And yes, I did begin to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is my experience with alcoholism to a T. If you can relate to this, you're in the right place. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it was, it was a really surreal experience when I showed up to the treatment center I had just been to a few months earlier, and they recognized me, and they're like, oh, no. You know, like they, they recognized the same person coming back. Recovery alcoholic Mike Chase. Hey, Mike Chase. This is a really weird organization. You know, this book is specifically – well, they tell you when you read the book, you're supposed to – not not compare, but try and relate. But at the same time, it's an organization that's giving you every loophole not to be here if you don't belong here. We have, we're not trying to trick you in here. We're giving you every opportunity to see your truth. 
am I a real alcoholic like they mention? Am I a chronic alcoholic or am I a problem-heavy hard drinker or as I like to call them, a PWHD? <laughs> um, because if you are, you don't really need to be here. You come here, feel free and stuff like that. But we're trying to diagnose you to be an alcoholic and, and an alcoholic of the variety that needs a spiritual experience to stay sober. So they're giving everybody who doesn't really need to belong here an open door. Listen, you're, you go see some therapy, you know, go play sober softball, you know, get new friends, stop hanging out with that person, you know, and, and, and then you don't need to come to these things. But they're given this opportunity for me to identify myself because I am going to be drawn to the person in my IOP who doesn't do anything but still doesn't get high or get drunk. And I want to do what he does, which was practice and not do stuff. Whoa. So, I love this part of the book. It's the, the moderate drinker. Whoever got stuck on a date with a moderate drinker accidentally? You know, they're really cute. They're going to love the person and all that, but they're... Do you want to open the door? What is that? I think that's, the sewer must have flopped open. My new cologne, Ode to Homeless. Um, they don't drink like me. They don't behave like me. And I just got to get away from them. And then I hung out with a bunch of problem-heavy hard drinkers, or as I like to call them, the PWHDs. They look like me. They act like me. And somebody would come along and tell them, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your boyfriend. You're going to lose your girlfriend. You're going to lose your wife. These things. And they can put it down. But they were drinking just as abusive as me. And then we, I just loved how Kelly talked about this whole paragraph. This is me also. This is my life, you know? The let him drink for a day. Normal people don't drink for a whole day. <laughs> you know, maybe fishermen, but the ironic thing, you know, you, you go down to Bahia Mar on a Sunday afternoon about 5 o'clock when all the boats are coming in. There's a bunch of shit-faced fishermen stumbling in, you know? But 90% of those guys are going to go home and chill in front of television and watch Murder, She Wrote, and be just set for the rest of the night. About 10% of us are going to go home and we're going to drink more. We're going to keep on drinking. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get the real alcoholics to, to discover who you are and stay who you are. So this is cool. Thank you for doing this tonight. Um, the phenomenon of craving. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and reach over to that glass that has a couple cigarettes floating in of scotch. I knew it was scotch, but some idiot put cigarette butts in it, you know. I'm not waking up because I'm thirsty. I'm not waking because I just love the taste of warm scotch in the middle of the night. For some reason, I just automatically come to. I look over, scotch, cigarette, stick my hand in the glass, take out the cigarette box, throw them on the floor, chug that nasty crap down, and then pass out right then and there. Normal people don't do that. So as we're going through here, try to relate but you might do some comparing, too, because you're not one of us. You don't really need to be here. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it says, in the doctor's opinion, that these men weren't drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a, an allergy, a craving that was beyond their mental control. Right? I like so, the part down at the bottom here where it talks about that he often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career. Gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and then he pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series. And I think that not knowing what the solution is, like you, that can be a really bleak paragraph, you know, or a really bleak statement. But I have something written at the bottom, at the end of the forward to the first edition, 
um, where it says, when you are fully engaged in the recovery process, dormant forces, faculties, and talents you did not even know you had will come alive. You'll be awakened and you'll discover yourself to be a greater person by far than you ever dreamed yourself to be. God will shine through you like a fog light. So I think that that's what the other side of that looks like. Yeah. So does anybody else have anything on this paragraph? We do have a note in the book. It says Robert, Robert Louis Stevenson was the author of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the book, and he actually died from alcoholism. And he, they said that he believed it was believed that it was his story, the book Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So that's uh, yeah. We got to we got to no. Okay. All right. We're going to continue on to the next paragraph. Is the four. Is the foregoing a complete picture of the real alcoholic? This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic. As our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Okay. Anything on that paragraph? I I just want to point out, too, it says elsewhere in the book that if you can quit on a non-spiritual basis, then that, that means that you're probably not the real alcoholic. Right? It means that you, you probably haven't lost that power of choice in drink. So, uh, anything else on this paragraph? If hundreds of drunken experiences have ended in a debacle, what are the questions? Read that entire paragraph, please. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of his common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Anybody ever felt like that about their, their drinking? This paragraph's all, all about the mental obsession, right? And, you know, I think at some point in my drinking career, that became my solution to my problem was drinking and drugs. Yeah. Um, so whether or not I wired my brain to think that that was the solution, regardless of if it worked for me or not, like that's my brain was telling me that that was the answer, you know? So even though I don't know why I did any of those questions that I just asked, like I know that that in my head, that was the lie I was telling myself. Me too. We have some understanding of this today. Three sentences. Perhaps there will, perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. Can we answer the riddle? <laughs> we cannot answer the riddle. <laughs> Bummer. Well, the good thing we have a solution at least, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything on this paragraph? Okay. Next. Of what are we certain? We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We got a three-part question. Of what are we equally positive? Does the ingestion of alcohol affect both the body and the mind? And what is the result of taking any alcohol into the body of an alcoholic? We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both both in the bodily and and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. What makes the preceding statement exceedingly clear? The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Mm. We got a comment here. From this point in the book, we will be dealing with the real problem of the chronic, real alcoholic, the problem of the mind, the inability of the alcoholic to manage the decision to not start drinking again based on self-knowledge, self-will, or the alcoholic's willpower. We will be told of the need for a spiritual experience, spiritual awakening to survive alcoholism. 
the reason the alcoholic must gain access to a higher power. So, and yeah, we got to. Yep. Alcoholic Mike Chase. I was because that's awesome that you read it. This is that part in the book where we take a complete flip of where we're going. Up to this point, we've been specifically pounding onto ourselves the physical aspect, the phenomenon of craving, how we react differently, how we can be sedatives and we still come to when we should be sleeping, how we should. You know, I've had friends that drink as much as me and they're out for a couple of days. You know, I'm up a couple hours later to score more or get more and stuff like that. So we've been concentrating this part of the there's a solution on the physical aspects of it. So if we just don't put us in it, that's not a problem. I'm a, I'm allergic to spring grass, so I don't roll around naked in spring grass. <laughs> you know, people don't eat peanuts. People don't eat things that they're not supposed to eat. But for us, we're going to find out why that's the problem right now. So this is cool. We are equally positive. Once you takes any alcohol into a system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm that. You try explaining phenomenon of craving to a non-alcoholic, and they look like, you're, like we're an alien. They just don't get it. They'll never experience it. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, they're like, you, you just like it too much, man. Just slow down. My name is Dean. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Dean. Um, this chapter, um, I call it the, the mental obsession. I didn't know what this was, but this, this is what happened to me. Okay, I stopped drinking, and I was good. And all of a sudden, I have this great idea, and I start to get excited about going to the liquor store. <laughs> you know, so I start to mentally obsess about getting the liquor. And then I get to the store, and I'm excited about that. So... I related to this going, this is what's going on with me. When people tell me, why can't you just quit? Like your father or your um, wife or your family members, just quit. And you're like, I try, but I keep finding myself drunk. And so for me, this point in the book, it's very important we stay where we are because we heard one story about a guy who found a solution, but I got no real understanding of it yet. And so we're getting into this point. Now I'm finding out the problem is in my mind. Now, how do I deal with that? It's so contrary to everything I've been told in my life that I can control my destiny. And now I'm finding out that I am really lost. And this, and this whole book continues to show me that I, I am this real alcoholic. I find myself, <laughs> you know, in places where doorknobs are on one side and I'm on the other and I'm locked up again. <laughs> and and, and I, I can't figure it out. So I'm here reading the book with you and, and I'm trying to figure out how is it that you don't end up at the liquor store at the end of the day and I do. So this was encouraging to me to find out that this was an illness. We talked about that. That I'm not just insane, but I sort of am. But there is a solution. So I was like real excited about this. So we're about to find out what the truth might be. But right now I know that it centers in my mind. I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Imagine if people that had like allergies to other things had that mental twist telling them they needed to like like a gluten allergy. Like so they're like, oh, I need that piece of bread now. Or peanut allergy. Telling you how to have a peanut butter sandwich. Going in and out.
anaphylactic shock all around you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Get out the EpiPens. We're having a party. <laughs> Um, yeah, on bottom of page 43, the last paragraph on page 43, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, and except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, right? So the craziest thing that I ever did was make the decision after a period of abstinence to pick up the first drink and set off that phenomenon of craving again, right? And that's that restoring to sanity that they talk about in the second step. Mm -hmm. Anybody have anything else on this paragraph? If you ask an alcoholic why he drinks, can he give you an honest answer? Oh, wait, sorry. That's, I skipped ahead. What sets the terrible cycle in motion? We're on page 23. These ob observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Where does the real problem of the alcoholic rest? Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We got a question. Is the real problem physical or mental insanity? Physical allergy or mental insanity? If you ask him why he's... Why? Just ask the question. Yeah, that, sorry. That was just more of a comment, but That's it says a question. Oh. <laughs> if you ask an alcoholic why he drinks, can he give you an honest answer? Two sentences, please. If you ask him why he started on the last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc and the alcoholics drinking, the alcoholic an alcoholics drinking bout creates. What analogy do the authors give us? They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you point this out to him, what will be his reaction? If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. All right, this page is now open for comments. Recovered alcoholic Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Before, um, before I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not understand what alcoholism really was. And you know that, that the, 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 the mental obsession and the physical craving that became normal to me. Like it says, the alcoholic's life is normal. It becomes normal. You know, it became normal to me to either put that first drink in my body and I was off to the races. And there was no moderation. There was, once I put it into my body, something turned on and it was this vibration and it could not be quieted with enough alcohol quickly or enough. my mind did have absolutely no mental defense against it. I would do the most absurd things. You know, I mean, like, it, it just got worse and worse and worse. And any normal person would say, that's a problem. Don't, don't do that anymore. Right? But I would rationalize it and justify it. I'd be like, this time it'll be different. This time I'll just, you know, have a little bit or I try to control it here and there. And, or I'd promise not to drink anymore. And I'd be asked, why did you, why did you drink? I, I don't know. I had no idea why I was drinking. But I was absolutely the person that was hitting my head with a hammer, trying to get rid of a headache. 
I had no reasoning or I would shut down, become irritable and become antisocial. So you don't bother me about it. I'll go hide somewhere and do it if you bother me enough about it. But that, that is it. That's the alcoholic life becomes the only normal life. That's normal. That's crazy. That's, that's in our mind. I remember I was on the verge of divorce, just driving my ex-wife crazy, white knuckling about a month of abstinence from drinking. And then it was my friend's wedding, right? That was an excuse that had a certain plausibility. I was like, that's Kevin and Lauren's wedding. Let's do this. And she's like, are you crazy? Like you've, yeah, but. So it had a certain plausibility, but not, not to her. Ex-wife, I should say. <laughs> Scott, what's going on? Scott, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Scott. Hey, Scott. You know, these, these couple of pages here really touch on how crazy your life looks to your friends and your family. And you're, trying to, you're trapped in this circle because the only people you know are normal people. And normal people are telling you you're crazy. You're frustrated because everything you're trying to do, they're telling you to do is not working. And the anger builds up and the resentment builds up and everything. And I remember feeling that way. Like, I just didn't know what else to do. And thank God for people to do service. Because I ended up in a meeting with two alcoholics speaking. And it was like they knew me. Everything they talked about was exactly what I had gone through. And these people were telling me, there is a solution to this. But it's not what your friends and family are telling you. It's something completely different. And I know that made me feel tremendously better about myself, that I wasn't this moral failure, and that there was something else going on here. And I just had to find the right people that knew what they're talking about. And thank God AA was that. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks for sharing. I like to talk about here, like, what's the lie that you went out on in your last debacle, right? When you you went out on the last bender, what took you out? And, And I know for me, that was, I'd been in treatment, I'd been sober for five months, and then I went back home to Maryland from Florida, and I had been living in a halfway, and people were telling me not to drink. And I, my reasoning was, you know, I want to be free. I just want to be free and assert my, my freedom and my independence. I don't want to not drink because people are telling me to, so I'll just make the decision to drink, right? It sounds pretty crazy after all the consequences I had. But, and then I would ask, like, hey, what, what, are some, what, what are the reasons that you went out on the last bender? You know, what's some of the crazy ideas that, that brought you out through that mental obsession, the lies you believed? We got one back here? Yeah. Um, I'm David. I'm a uh, recovering alcoholic. Hey, David. So it talks about the uh, sanitariums and stuff. Um, ended up in a in a treatment center, a uh, 30-day program where they did benzos, benzo maintenance, even though that's not a real thing. Uh, but the sedatives, yeah, so I'm away from my drink. I'm away from the drink, but I'm putting the sedatives in my body, and I did that for about three months and then realized it's really hard to come off of them. Um, and thought I could just quit. And uh, I think I knew I was going to relapse, and I kind of was just going to use that as my excuse. And uh, I ended up the third day cold turkey just of stopping taking the the sedatives. I was drinking and, again, taking the sedatives. And it was like this is a one-time thing. It's one time. Because my euphoric recall tells me that those times where I was homeless or that I was in prison or whatever – you know, completely flipped upside down. That's not going to happen again. It'll be different this time. Um, and believing that, you know, justifying it to the point where I genuinely believe it, it's going to be just one more. And that one more is going to lead me to some divine intervention. That's the crazy part. I think I'm going to just figure it all out. Like, I'm going to just figure it all out on the next one. Just one more. So thanks for letting me share. Thanks for sharing. We got one in the back and right, right there. Yeah. 
Grace, Recovered Alcoholic. Hey, hey Grace. Um, so when you posed the question, what was the excuse that um, took you out? I, um, I was very good at excuses. Like some might say like professional, like so good because I would make, I would really sell it. You know, I really <laughs> believed in my excuses. And the thing is that um, I would mostly um, highlight on like my trauma and stuff like that. Uh, things that occurred to me, like happened with me in childhood that have nothing to do with the fact that I'm allergic to alcohol. That Like those, anyway. Um, but I would bring up this really dark stuff. And um, then people would just kind of shut down and not want to argue with me about it. And the thing is that I feel like I sold myself short. I um, feel like I made light of my trauma in that way by using it as a silly excuse to make my life worse. And it was like, um, the, they sound like these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc alcoholics drinking bout creates like, Oh, um, I'm getting bullied. I think maybe getting arrested, um, my, I think doing things leading to me getting arrested might feel better. Um, I was, um, assaulted. So let me go, um, to a party where I, I'm underage and I get blackout drunk and I'm susceptible to more manipulation and trauma and, um, that it becomes a cycle and then I'm drinking. Um, and then my excuses come from the havoc that my drinking has wreaked on my own life. And I just have to keep drinking to deal with the fact that my drinking is ruining my life. And, um, but yeah, none of, um, I, I did have good excuses. I mean, if there is such a thing, but, um, none of that, none of them were really true. I, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol and that's what I was doing. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Alcoholic Mike Chase. Hey, Mike Chase. I started socially drinking at age six, and um, I did it because I liked it. I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it. I hadn't had any traumas. I had no horrible things. going. I just liked being part of the fun. I enjoyed doing it. I also liked sniffing glue. I also liked uh, smelling or sniffing uh, spray cooking products, you know, huffing and uh, paint was always fun. Um, and I liked drinking. But something about the drinking, when I started, I, I would socially drink until I was about nine and I discovered getting drunk. And then, then it was, that was fun. I didn't get the phenomenon of craving until probably... 17 or 18 up to then I was just a recreational drunkard but then I would start drinking and I couldn't stop once I started but I was able to go a week a couple weeks without doing it again I'd say oh I'm not doing that again I got so much trouble I'm not doing that again I didn't get the mental obsession until well one thing I got rid of parental control at high school college and uh, I did I didn't really have, it's sort of funny because I suffered from the enjoyment of alcohol I abused alcohol. Phenomenon of craving occurred in the late teens and 20s. Mental obsession didn't kick in to me until 2021, 20, 22. You know, I was suffering from um, 
uncomfortability. I always had a good reason to drink. And you live in Minnesota, there's not much to do except go to a bar in the weekend or go play football. So drinking was the part of it. So when I found out that the whole purpose of the whole reason for the mental obsession is that after a while, my brain kind of like rewires itself chemically and... You know, it's like it's this chemical reaction just wanting me to come for, up with a loophole. My brain does this little song. Got to drink, got to drink, got to drink, 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 got to drink, got to drink, got to drink, 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 got to drink, got to drink, got to drink, 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 got to drink, got to drink. Continually, all the time in the back of my mind. And I'm just looking for that one excuse at a bar during lunch. And they say, oh, they're making jello shots. Give me one. Or I'm at a club. I don't want to drink anymore, but somebody offers me a drink. But it's funny how the chemical, I become an alcoholic phenomenon craving, and years later, then I get mental obsession because I've abused my brain so much, it just craves it when I'm not doing it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. The whole hammer, beating yourself in the head with the hammer analogy, this kind of reminds me of this. There's this children's book called The Little Prince, and it's, uh, there's a chapter where this kid encounters this guy that's drinking, and he says, why are you drinking? He says, I'm drinking to forget. What are you drinking to forget? I'm drinking to forget that I'm ashamed. And he says, what are you ashamed of? I'm drinking to forget that I'm ashamed of drinking. And that's like the, the circle that, that we get into sometimes toward the end. And, and we got a friend back there that talks about late-stage alcoholism, right? We make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. We might pass out and then wake up thirsty and just go and drink again immediately and drink and drink until we die. You know? And that's, that's what happens without that, that higher power, that spiritual solution. Uh, poor alcoholic. Hi, poor. poor. So... Um, I'm uh, like a chronic relapser, like the real deal. Like I've done the steps, sponsored, um, and then gone back out knowing the truth, um, having fully conceded to my innermost self that I am an alcoholic and having an experience that proves that I have a threefold illness. And even though my experience shows that and then people can put that in front of me, you know, last time you died, last time your heart stopped, it's always been the same. It's never going to change. And, and when that obsession uh, and that thought creeps its way into my brain, all of it just becomes frothy emotional appeal. And um, there's no more depth and weight in, in the truth. And somebody told me once that the, um, the lie that we go out on, the lie is like parallel to the truth. And because I can't differentiate the true from the false, that lie seems really reasonable. <laughs> and it always to me, is always, um, yeah, but this time it'll be different. Thanks, Bora. Thanks for sharing. My name is Andre, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Andre. And, um, you know, thank God I'm not that smart. You know, this program came pretty easy to me. Um, you know, I wasn't one of these people who were, like, you know, really intellectual and thought that, you know, I was, you know, hot shit. You know, I was pretty beaten down. In here, so I came in here pretty desperate, um, you know, not knowing what to do, hopeless, um, you know. So I'm one of these people who haven't relapsed at all. And it's been like five and a half years, and the only reason I say that is because I ran my life to the ground, did it for years, and um, and you know that's the only life I knew. And um, you know, I got sober through the rooms. I didn't have to go to treatment or halfway or anything, um, you know. And it should be—I just had no other choice. Um, you know, so, um, you know, so like, uh, I, I know people, you know, who have like intellectualized it and, you know, really try to make sense about it and, you know, debate it and stuff like that. You know what? Um, you know, some, somebody told me, you know, you're not ready till you're ready. Um, you know, if somebody's willing to do this, you know, you can never, you're, you're never going to say the wrong thing to them to deter them. 
But if somebody's not ready, no matter how hard, I, no matter how badly I want you to get sober, I'm never going to say the right thing to keep you here. So, you know, what? this is like, this isn't just an individual journey. You know, there's been a lot of people that I really cared for, you know, who I really tried. It went above and beyond, you know, to try and keep them in here. And you know what? You're not ready till you're ready. So thank you. Thanks, Andre. Thanks for sharing. We had Allie B. doing a step series not too long ago, and she said uh, the disease of alcoholism is like uh, getting it on with the gorilla. It's over, it's over when the gorilla decides it's over. <laughs> right? That's what, that was Allie, Allie B. Give her credit for that. So. Oh, my God, that's bananas. <laughs> uh, well, what do you say, Ryan? Do you, anything else? Does anybody have anything else on this, or should we wrap her on up? Any, anybody? Okay, let's, let's wrap it up. I think on that note of the gorilla. <laughs> All right, so this is from A Vision for You on page 164. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and for countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. It is the practice of the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for group member sponsors to introduce their new sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. Do we have any members of AA that have a sponsee? Yeah? Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to grab it. I surprised you guys, didn't I? Yep. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm a recovered alcoholic. This is my home group. Hi, homies. Haven't seen you guys in a while. Uh, I met this gentleman last Thursday. He's been on a bit of a sojourn starting in L.A. and spent about six months in the Aspen area and then got out here. And uh, Thursday we sat down and talked about what AA is about and what the goals are and the spirituality of the program. And Saturday we went through uh, the doctor's opinion. And uh, we're going to be talking about Bill's story. I think we're going to make it a two-parter and make it a cliffhanger and stop at I Found Religion. Please meet Elvis. Thanks so much, Scott. Is anybody celebrating a year or more sobriety and wants to pick up a, a medallion? Is anyone in need of a sponsor? Anyone need somebody to take them through the big book? Okay, we got a couple. Yeah, we'll come on. Uh, let's see one of the people that, that raised their hand with the recovered part or just come chat with us after the meeting here at the podium. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to become a member of this group, please join us after the meeting to fill out a membership card. Can all home group members raise your hands? Excellent. We got a help us afterward to break down, and we got a business meeting tonight, too. And if you'd like to become a member, just join us afterward. We'll follow a member. We did that. Uh, we'll see you right after the meeting. Um, thank you for joining us tonight, and I uh, hope to see you next week. Thursday Thurs evening. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. We got an Alcoholics <laughs> and God's Step Series workshop starting at 7.15 downstairs, Doc H. It's awesome. Don't miss it. And uh, also, please wait till you're 75 feet away from the doors to uh, smoke or vape. We've got buckets set up down at the sidewalk down there. Um, or if, if all you do is vape, you're more than welcome to go out on the lovely balcony over here if you're stable. Um, 
No benzo maintenance <laughs> on the balcony. <laughs> um, let's close now with the Lord's Prayer. Who will take us from shame to grace? Our Father. It doesn't matter.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Time in my life 
fields are green now, growing vines. They twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. Cause this broken man I traveled far and wide through the great divide through his own heart, yeah. Just about to start. So I face each day in a brand new way. Show up and plug in my guitar. And I play my songs. And people sing along. And stomp their feet and raise their arms. And here in this moment that we share. The fog is lifted, see the light, count my blessings when I go to sleep at night, and I dream now. Ten years old, that song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Just won't set me free. Well, clap your hands, you believe me, children. 